Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Morning, church. Isn't that awesome? Can we praise God for what he did here this last week? Yeah. And uh, we really believe that real seeds of faith were planted there. So my encouragement to you would be just keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. This is a wonderful time of year where we just get to announce the good news of what Jesus has done. Uh, my name's Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here. And my guess is you have had that conversation before. Uh, there's a, a different name, of course, for it in every era. But I'm sure regardless of what it was during your entrance into the world of dating, you know what conversation I'm talking about. Uh, When I was in college, it was called the DTR. And those three letters would strike fear into the heart of any young man with romantic intentions because DTR, of course, stands for define the relationship. That this is the kind of conversation we have to have. And you can imagine the scenario where it would come into play that a guy and a girl, they start hanging out together and there seems to be perhaps a little bit of a spark, but it's still just, you know, a a little bit unclear. Like, is there anything here? Is this going anywhere? And so eventually they have to sit down and they have to define the relationship. And as a relationship keeps going, you have to have multiple DTR conversations because eventually, you know, a couple's been going steady here for a little while now, but the clock is ticking. And so eventually that girl looks that guy in the eyes and she says like, hey buddy, is there a ring in your budget or not? Let's define this relationship because it's about time to fish or cut bait. Some of you have been in the hot seat for that conversation. That's a DTR. Now, um, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the world record for the longest recorded engagement, like a couple that desperately needed a DTR, was that there's a couple in Mexico who was engaged for 67 years before finally tying the knot at age 82. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Now, if you've got your steel-toed boots on this morning, let me ask you a question. Is that your relationship with God today? Yeah, sure, you're kind of together, or at least it appears like that, but is that commitment as defined and as binding as perhaps it needs to be? Fair warning, we're going to have a little bit of a DTR today. We're going to come to a time later on when you're going to get to define your relationship with Jesus And here's why, because there's going to come a day when he returns, and you will look him in the face. And as you look into his eyes, my job is to help make sure that all of us are ready for that day. Because I don't want Jesus to look you in the eyes and to ask you, hey, what is this thing? Are you in or are you out? And we're going to go there today toward that DTR by way of one of the most famous DTRs in Scripture. As Eric said, we're in the book of Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 3 today, and we're in the little town of Bethlehem in your Old Testaments, a thousand years before Jesus was born. And as we've been walking through this book of Ruth, we've been asking some questions together. In Ruth chapter 1, we asked, where is God when it hurts? Because we saw this story of Naomi who loses her husband and she loses both of her sons and she's in a foreign land. And yet, on her way home, in the middle of her pain, we saw that God is still with her as shown in the commitment 
of Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, who said, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And then last week in Ruth chapter two, we asked the question, how will God provide? Because last week in chapter two, Ruth and Naomi, they're back in Bethlehem now, but they have no way of earning a living. They have no idea where their next meal is gonna come from. They're both single, no children, nobody to take care of them. That is a precarious position for women to be in in those days. And so, but we see that, oh, God, God will provide for them because God orchestrates these circumstances and they run into this guy named Boaz who's a wealthy local farmer and he shows God's generosity to them. And now here we are in Ruth chapter three today and it is time for a DTR. Ruth chapter three says this. Now one day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Pause right there. We'll read the whole chapter, but we're gonna be stopping and starting a little bit along the way because remember, um, this is a precarious position for these women to be in. They're single, they've got no children, nobody to care for them, nobody to protect them. And Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's fields now for a few weeks, but nothing is really happening, you know? And so Naomi decides to take matters into her own hands and to provide for Ruth's long-term security by orchestrating a marriage. We all have that one friend who likes to play matchmaker, right? Those people. Yeah, I don't like them either. It's okay. Um, the text goes on. It says, now Boaz, with whose women you've been working, Naomi says, he's a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, Ruth, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Pause right there. Now, for some of you, you might be breathing a little quicker. Your palms might be getting a little sweaty. Maybe your cheeks are getting red. Is that saying what it sounds like it's saying? It's a natural question to ask. Okay, like, Naomi, you're telling Ruth to get dressed up And to go down to where Boaz is, after Boaz has had an evening of wine and dancing, you're telling Ruth to go find him alone in the dark, and he will tell you what to do? Now, you're not wrong for thinking there that there are some seriously scandalous overtones to this passage And some people have chosen to interpret it that way. But I think when we take this story in the greater context of the book of Ruth as a whole, it's not what it might appear to be at first glance. Naomi tells Ruth, first of all, to go clean herself up. What that means is, Naomi, it's time to take off your clothes of grieving for the death of your husband. You've been publicly identifying as a widow long enough now. Put on some clean clothes, and by doing so, you will let Boaz know that you are available. And then you should go to Boaz and you should go to him alone in the dark. Not to seduce him, but so that her reputation can be safe and so that Boaz's reputation can be safe in case he says no. Then Ruth, you should lay down at his feet and ask him to spread his garment over you. Basically, that's a marriage proposal. You're asking, may I take the position of your wife? The text continues, Ruth responds. She says, I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. 
In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. So we see here the DTR seems to be going well so far. He's receptive to this proposal. Boaz is actually amazed that Ruth would choose him because he's apparently older than she is. It reminds me of the one about the, the rich 77-year-old man who was golfing with his buddies when all of a sudden this beautiful 25-year-old girl comes up to him, kisses him on the cheek, starts flirting with him a little bit and this goes on for several minutes eventually she leaves and his buddies all turn to him and they said Bob you didn't tell us about your girlfriend and he said girlfriend that's my wife and they said Bob how in the world did an old man like you get married to a beautiful young woman like that and, and he shook his head and he finally admitted well you know I, I did lie to her about my age by about 20 years and they said, oh, you told her you were 57? He said, no, I told her I was 97. <laughs> That's a little bit of what's going on here. <laughs> Boaz is amazed that Ruth would choose him, and now he takes matters into his own hands. He's going to take it from here. He says, and now, my daughter, don't, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people from my town know that you are a woman of noble character, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but she got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. So even though they didn't do anything, nothing happened, they want to avoid even the appearance of sin, as should we. And Boaz went on. Says he also said, bring me the shawl that you're wearing and, and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. So, so remember this little nugget because this is important. Boaz gives Ruth this extra food, kind of like a pledge, like a promise that he's going to do what he said he would do. It's almost like an engagement ring. The story continues. It says, then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he even gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Pretty incredible story, isn't it? Like, talk about a DTR. If that's not a Hallmark movie, I don't know what is. And you know what I mean by that, right? What has a dozen actors, four settings, three writers, and one plot line? 
677 Hallmark Christmas movies, right? If you've seen one, you've seen them all, and you know the plot line as well as I do. They're all the same. Big city businesswoman has to go back to her hometown for Christmas, and she walks around the corner with a cup full of coffee, and oh, just happens to bump into this cute, handsome, mild-mannered country boy. She's wearing a green sweater. He's wearing a red scarf. Sparks start to fly, throw in a Christmas tree farm, and a dog and at least one romantic scene in the falling snow and roll credits. Am I right or am I right? Thank you very much. You don't need to go watch them. All right. And in this scene that we just saw, Ruth and Boaz, it seems a little bit like that. Like this is a Hallmark storybook romance. The DTR went well and everybody lives happily ever after, right? But here's the question. Why? Is this more than just a feel-good story, or what's the point? There's a lot of ways we could go here from Ruth chapter 3. For starters, we could talk about the power of committed community. Each of you have a hard battle to fight. You've got a tough road to hoe. You have a tough race to run. All of you, all of us, are facing hard things, and you can't do it alone. Um, I'm reminded when I think about this of, of the story of the Lord of the Rings. I'll admit I've never read the books, but I have seen the movies and I did like the movies. And, and if you've seen them or been exposed to the story, you might know that the main character is Frodo and he's been given this task to destroy the ring. But in the process, the ring almost destroys him. And Frodo goes through fire and poison and battle and prison. And finally, at the end of his journey, as he's almost there where he can finally complete this mission and destroy the ring, he collapses. He's unable to make the final push. But then if you've seen it, you know that at that moment, his faithful friend Sam comes up. And in one of those great cinematic moments, Sam says, come on, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. You know, it's this great moment. And you need community like that. That's what God made the church for. Paul says to carry each other's burdens. Throughout this whole book, we've seen it. Ruth never gets a voice from heaven. She gets no burning bush. She gets no pillar of cloud. She gets no prophets, no angels, no miracles. But she has Naomi, and Naomi has her. And God uses Ruth to teach Naomi, but here in chapter three, God uses Naomi to nudge Ruth. And you need God's people around you speaking wisdom into your life. I love that this is an intergenerational church and that we get intergenerational relationships. You need relationships with other people in this church who are of a different generation than you because they're gonna think differently than you do and you can sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. If we're going to be fully alive in Jesus, it's gonna happen in community. We want every single person here involved as a group because this is a big room we have to work hard to get small. We could talk about the power of committed community, but we don't have time to talk about that. So we could talk about the power of defiant faith. Because uh, if you think about it, Ruth and Boaz, both of them, they go the extra mile in the name of that chesed, steadfast, covenant, loyal love that we talked about, that promise-keeping love. And, and the defiant faith of Ruth and Boaz stands in stark contrast to some of the other characters of the story. Did you notice that each Ruth and Boaz are given a contrast character to highlight their faith? Um, in chapter one, the contrast character for Ruth is her sister-in-law, Orpah, 
who chooses to go home and not to go with Naomi. In chapter four, if you go read it this week, you'll see that Boaz also has a contrast character, this other guy who's also eligible to redeem Ruth, but he chooses not to. That would be too expensive, too much of a risk. And, and for both of those people, Orpah and this other guy, it's not like what they did is bad. The text does not portray them as bad guys. What they did is perfectly normal and perfectly reasonable. It's just that they pale in comparison to the defiant faith of Ruth and Boaz. And even eventually, now here in chapter 3, Naomi shows that same faith, that same kind of above and beyond, extra mile, defiant faith. She takes the initiative. She says, you know what, Ruth? I'm going to take care of you. We're going to find you a husband. And, and as you think about it, we've, we've talked about this before. God is not one of the prominent main characters in this story. We don't see God moving in these visible, dramatic, obvious ways. God does accomplish his will in this story, but he does it through people. God's behind the scenes. In this whole story, the human will and the divine will mix to accomplish God's purposes. Think about it. God does prove his presence to Naomi, but he does it through Ruth's commitment. And God does prove his generosity to Naomi, but he does it through Boaz's gift. And God does prove his ability to provide for Ruth, but he does it through Naomi's matchmaking. And so that means that, that for you and I, yes, I hope you will spend time in periods of discernment asking for the Lord's will to be done. I hope that you will soak your plans in prayer and commit your path to the Lord. I hope you'll surrender to God's will. But you've also heard that old phrase, don't stand on a shovel and pray for a hole. <laughs> Think about it. In, in chapter two, you might remember that Boaz prayed that Ruth would find refuge under God's wings. But now here in chapter three, Ruth asks Boaz, hey, take me under your wings. Put me under your protective garment. Ruth is asking Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer. And often when you pray for something, God will make you the answer to your own prayer. That means that if you are praying for God to save one of your friends, he might want you to share the gospel. And if you are praying for people who are suffering, if you're praying for the health of our church, if you're praying for those who are in poverty, God might want you to redouble your commitment to giving and to service or to go on a mission trip. Sometimes you actually need to get off your knees and get up and get to work to, to go till you get a no and to chase your dream and to take a risk and to do something that might not make sense by reasonable explanations but just takes defiant faith. But we don't have time to talk about that. Uh, we could also jump from this text. We could also talk about the power of a life of integrity. A life of integrity. Because listen, I, I don't need to tell you this. We don't need to belabor the point here. You and I, we're living in a world that is obsessed with self and that will tell you to do whatever makes you happy. Specifically, often, it, the world will tell you to take every opportunity you can to gratify your sexual cravings. And yet this story shows that both Ruth and Boaz could be trusted to do the right thing even when they're alone in the dark because they had already proven themselves to be people of integrity. And here in Ruth chapter three, um, Boaz says to Ruth, he says, you are well known in town as a woman of noble character. Is that your reputation? Literally, it's a, a worthy woman, Boaz says. 
which is interesting because just back in chapter two, that same phrase was used to describe Boaz. It says that he's a worthy man. We have a worthy man and a worthy woman here. Now, here's an interesting tidbit about that. Can you buckle in here with me for four minutes and let me nerd out on something? Because I think this is fun, all right? Um, here's why that's interesting that Boaz and Ruth are called a worthy man and a worthy woman, a man and a woman of noble character. When the ancient Jews arranged their scripture, they had the same Old Testament we did, but the books were in slightly different orders. And the book of Ruth for the Jewish scripture actually came right after the book of Proverbs. For us, we have Joshua Judges Ruth, but, but, but for the Jews, they put the book of Ruth right after Proverbs. Here's why that's interesting. You might remember, Proverbs has 31 chapters. And at the end of the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, we have this scene that ends the book where there's a mother telling her son what a noble woman is, the Proverbs 31 woman, a worthy woman. This mother is saying to her son, son, this is the kind of woman worth devoting yourself to, a woman who will be a benefit to your life and not a detraction from your life. And so the Jews put the story of Ruth right after that so that they could see what a noble woman was like in real life. Now, um, when I think back on um, my dating experience, particularly when I think back on like my sophomore year in college, we won't get into very many stories, but there was not much that I did right my sophomore year in college. Most of the times, I did not know my elbow from my hind end. But there were a few things that I did do right my sophomore year of college, and one of them was that before I went on my first date with Rebecca Moyers, I remember it just like it was yesterday, I got down on my bed, and I was not actively walking with the Lord at that point, but for some reason, I got down on my knees beside my bed, and I opened up my Bible to Proverbs 31, because I'm a preacher's kid, and I knew that text was in there, and I read down through it, and I just asked, Lord, would you just show me if this is a noble woman? And would you show me if this is a worthy woman? Would you show me if this is someone with the kind of character that's worth devoting my life to? And then I closed my Bible and I put it back on the shelf and I went and picked Rebecca up and, and, and we went down to the creek and we went fishing and we didn't get a bite, but I got the best catch of my life that night. You can tell her I said that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> they put the book of Ruth right after the book of Proverbs to show you and I that there is nothing in life more valuable than your integrity to be a person of noble character. This is what it looks like in real life. And if you wanna see the power of a life of integrity, we can dive a little deeper into the book of Ruth to see that. You might remember the book of Ruth starts in Ruth chapter one, verse one, by saying that all this story happened during the time of the judges. And you'll remember that's a time there was no king in Israel, so every person did what was right in their own eyes. It was a horrible time in Israel's history. But the book of Ruth is actually structured as a bridge to show you where a life of integrity can lead. Hang in there, let me nerd out here for just a second and come with me, give me a few more minutes. The book of Ruth is kind of structured like this, A, B, C, C, B, A, and here's what I mean. If you'll remember back in chapter one, the book of Ruth opens with scene A, which is a family history of decline and death. It's the story of Naomi's family who weren't actively necessarily following God and it's a, it's a history of destruction, faithlessness and death and decline and her husband dies and her sons die. And so then it moves to scene B and it tells us a story of kinship about these women who were not related by blood, but they were kind of stuck and connected together. After the family dies, all of a sudden it's Naomi with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And one woman does what's reasonable. Orpah goes home. 
but one woman goes above and beyond in the name of steadfast, chesed, covenantal love. That's Ruth. And so then the story moves to number C. It's the scene of Ruth and Boaz in the field. Now, in both of these C sections, no pun intended there, right? Um, there are five mirroring scenes in both of these sections. So think about last week in Ruth chapter two where it's Ruth and Boaz together in the field. Scene number one, Ruth arrives, or scene number one, there's a conversation between Ruth and Naomi. Then number two, Ruth arrives in the field. Number three, Boaz sees Ruth and tries to identify her. Who that girl, remember that? And then Boaz says to Ruth, you are a woman of noble character. And then Ruth goes back and she recaps everything with Naomi. Their integrity has been proven. Now here we are in a mirroring scene. We're also in a scene C here in Ruth chapter three. It's also Ruth and Boaz, but this time they're at the threshing floor and they have those five same scenes in this chapter. We see number one, a conversation between Ruth and Naomi. Then Ruth arrives at the threshing floor. Then Boaz sees her, tries to identify her. Who that girl? Then Boaz says, you are a woman of noble character. And then Ruth goes back and recaps everything with Naomi. Their integrity has been proven yet again in both of these scenes. So then we work our way backwards. Now we have a scene of kinship between the men. And in chapter four, we see that there's Boaz, who's also connected by blood to this other guy who's an eligible redeemer for them. And one of the guys does what's reasonable. He says, no, I, I can't redeem Ruth. It would cost me too much. But the other one, Boaz, goes above and beyond in the name of Chesed, steadfast covenant love. And so the story then ends at the end of chapter four with another family history. And this time, it's a history of new life that where there once had been decay and decline and death, now all of a sudden we see the genealogy, the descendants of Boaz and Ruth that lead all the way down to King David who would bring renewal and restoration to the nation and would ultimately lead to Jesus himself. This whole story is how a life of integrity can lead an entire nation from the time of the judges to the time of the kings and ultimately to Jesus. Look at the power of a life of integrity. But we don't have time to talk about that. <laughs> so instead of the power of committed community or the power of defiant faith or the power of a life of integrity, here's where we're gonna dial in and focus the rest of our time. This is the thing we do have time for. Over the last couple of weeks, we've asked the questions, where's God when it hurts and how will God provide? Today, let's ask the question, how does God speak? How does God speak? Uh, of course, we know God speaks in many ways, doesn't he? Uh, he speaks in dreams, in, in visions, he speaks through circumstances, he speaks through creation, he speaks through prophets, but uh, most clearly, God speaks in three primary and clear ways, his word, his spirit, his people. Those are the three clearest and most primary ways that God speaks, God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. But here specifically in Ruth chapter three, let's dial in and let's see how God speaks to us. In the context of Ruth chapter three, how does God speak? The answer is this, God speaks through the power of an enduring promise. The power of an enduring promise. Think about Ruth here for just a minute. Put yourself in her shoes, would you? Um, Ruth now, she's gleaning, so she's getting all the food that she needs from Boaz's fields, and that goes on for a while. But eventually, Ruth gets to the point where that's not enough. She doesn't just need the gift, she wants the giver. And so she goes after Boaz and she 
basically proposes. They have this DTR, and Boaz says, yes, I will take you. And did you notice, he says, as surely as the Lord lives. Boaz swears by the Yahweh covenant name of God, the chesed name of God. He says, yes, by the name of God, I will commit to you. And Boaz says, yes to Ruth, not because she's beautiful and not because she can benefit him in any way. He says, yes, because he is a man of noble character and he's generous. And Boaz gives Ruth assurance for her future, but he also gives her provision for her present. As a pledge of her future security, he gives her these six measures of barley. He gives her enough food to eat in the here and now as a promise that, yes, he will take care of her moving forward. This is a promise that, yes, he will take on her family, that, yes, he will take on her needs, that, yes, he will take on her debt as his own. And then after that, Ruth just has to go home. And she just has to wait and trust that Boaz is going to be true to his promise. That Boaz is actually going to do what he said he would do. That Boaz is actually going to fulfill his end of the deal. That he is actually going to bring her safely home to be with him. Is this sounding familiar at all? This is our life as we wait for the return of our king. As we, the bride of Christ, wait for the bridegroom to return. And so in the meantime, while you and I are here, and life is hard, isn't it? And it hurts, and we have surprises that we don't see coming, and we're disappointed in the people around us, and we're disappointed in our circumstances, and we're disappointed in ourselves because you're not yet who you want to be, and you and I have serious, unresolved questions, and you're in a confusing season, or maybe it's sad, and maybe it's hard, and maybe you're worried, and you don't know how to stop, or you're waiting for things that you don't know that you're ever going to get. That kind of waiting is really hard. So in the meantime, how does God speak to you? He speaks through the power of an enduring promise. Uh, there was a study done at Harvard back in the 1950s where they put rats in a pool to see how long they could swim. Now, I'm not condoning the ethics of this study. I'm not saying go do a little rat race in your bathtub when you get home, okay? But bear with me for the sake of the illustration. They put these rats in a swimming pool to see how long they could tread water, and they found that on average, those rats would give up and sink after about 15 minutes. But these researchers, what they did is that right before those rats would give up, they'd pluck them out of the water, pull them out, dry them off, and let them rest for a few minutes, and then put them back in the water for round two. And on that second try, how long do you think those rats lasted? Another five minutes? Another 10 minutes? Another 15 minutes? No, on average, those rats were able to swim for another 60 hours. Why? It's because they knew that rescue was possible. They had tasted it, and they believed that it would happen and come again, and so it gave them the power to endure. That's the power of an enduring promise. It gives you hope. It gives you the ability to persevere that, yes, something better is on the way. And so today, I don't know where you are this morning, but if you're tired, and man, if you are in a weary world and you need the thrill of hope and you're looking forward over the next couple weeks and you're knowing that Christmas is coming and it's gonna bring you maybe back face-to-face -face with some hard relationships or with loneliness, or that you're going to have to turn the page to the new year and confront all the progress that you didn't make this last year. If there's an empty seat at your table, 
if you're waiting, if you're confused, God wants to speak to you and he wants to enable you to endure and to wait faithfully to him by clinging to his enduring promise. Because you and I are a lot like Ruth, aren't we? I hope you'll get to the point in your life where you don't just want the gifts, where you don't just want the things that God gives you, but where you actually desire the giver himself. And I hope you'll go after him. And I want you to know that when you do, he has already said yes to you because he is Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the God of chesed, steadfast, covenant, loyal love. And, 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 and he doesn't take us, his church, as his bride. He doesn't take us as his bride because we're beautiful. He doesn't take us as his bride because we can benefit him in any way. He does it because he is a God of noble character and he's generous. And he gives us assurance that now when we are his, our future is secure, which is also a guarantee that he will provide for us in the here and now because if he's already taken care of that, won't he also take care of this? Because when God's son the great, 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 great grandson of Ruth and Boaz. When Jesus came and he was born in Bethlehem and he died on a cross, what did God do? That was God as a redeemer taking on our debt as his own. And so now in the meantime, you and I just have to trust that he is going to do it and that he will actually return and that one day we will be with him. Put yourself in Ruth's shoes early that morning before the sun rose as she got up from the threshing floor and went home. Can you imagine her state of mind? She just had to surrender it all. She had to trust. She had to trust that Boaz would do what he said he would do. She had to trust that Boaz was not gonna put her to shame, that he was not gonna embarrass her in front of everybody. She had to trust Naomi's words that Boaz was gonna settle the matter. It was in his hands. And I want you to know that you can trust that everything God starts, he finishes the enduring promise for you and for me is Philippians chapter one, verse six, that says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Everything God starts, he finishes. He's the beginner of our faith and he is the finisher of our faith. And Romans chapter five says that that kind of a hope, it won't put you to shame. He won't embarrass you and let you down in front of everybody. He's not gonna leave us high and dry. And Hebrews chapter six says that as we wait for him, we have that hope as an anchor for the soul, that it's, that it's firm, that it's secure, that it's a hope that you can take to the bank, that you can count on, that this promise is an enduring promise. And what is that hope that's an anchor for the soul? If you go read Hebrews chapter six this afternoon, you'll see that our hope that's an anchor for our soul is that God has sworn by his own name that he will do this. Just as Boaz said, in the name of Yahweh, I will. God has said, in my own name, I will. And that's good news, because God didn't swear by your name, and God didn't swear by my name. He's not counting on you and me to do it. He's not counting on us to carry it through to completion. He's counting on himself. And Philippians chapter two says that he's got it under control, that it's God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his own good purpose. That it's God who's gonna be do this. Paul says that it's Christ in you is your hope of glory. Not Christ and you, not you and Jesus taking 50-50 of the work. God's the one who's gonna do it. You can count on him. He hasn't failed in any of his promises yet and he won't now and he won't in the future. And so how does God speak to us then in the moment, in our waiting, in our longing, in our sinning, in our suffering, in our hoping, in our hurting? How God, does God speak? 
The beginning of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That God has given us Jesus and that Jesus is our hope, that in the same way that Boaz gave those six measures of barley to say, Ruth, here's a little taste of what I'm gonna do for you. God has given us Jesus and the spirit of Jesus living in our hearts as a down payment that the rest of the promise is coming. And Jesus is the enduring promise of God fulfilled. And so at Christmas, at this time of the year, when we, when we celebrate the one who was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy, and the one who went to the cross in fulfillment of prophecy, and the one who rose from the dead in fulfillment of prophecy is the same one who will return for us and right every wrong and make all things new in fulfillment of prophecy. Because Paul says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. So how does God speak? He has spoken to us through his son, through the power of his enduring promise in Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem. So if you wonder, if you wonder, if God still got you, if he's gonna do this, if the waiting is hard, look at the manger. God has not outpromised himself yet. So just hold on. Yes, live in community. Yes, embody defiant faith. Yes, seek a life of integrity, but also rest. Rest in the enduring promise that because Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose again and he now lives in us as his bride through his Holy Spirit, he has saved us and he is saving us and he will save us. I know the waiting is hard, but your redeemer has not forgotten you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you see our hopes, you see our longings, you, you, you see everything in us. And so as the waiting is difficult and as we long for the day when you will return and as we, as we chafe against the brokenness around us and the brokenness in ourselves and, and, and we face disappointment every day and we don't know how everything's gonna turn out, our ask, our simple prayer, God, is that you would enable us to wait faithfully for you and to trust your promise and that he who promised is faithful. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.